there, listeners and lurkers. I'm Alan Johnston. And I'm Amy Johnston. And we're so happy that you're joining us for The Last Isle. This week, we'll be covering the 2012 movie The Bay, directed by Barry Levinson, with story by Barry Levinson, with screenplay by Michael Wallach. This was Barry Levinson's first foray into horror in his long and storied career, previously directing such modern classics such as Rain Man and Good Morning Vietnam. This found footage mockumentary is going to have you canceling your trip to the coast and choosing somewhere other than Red Lobster for dinner tonight. (laughs) And now, if you'll indulge me, a dramatic reading of The Back of the Box. On July 4th, 2009, a deadly menace swept through the quaint seaside town of Claridge, Maryland, but the harrowing story of what happened that Independence Day has never been told until now. The authorities believe they had buried the truth about the tragedy that claimed over 700 human lives. Now, three years later, a reporter has emerged with footage revealing the cover-up and an unimaginable killer, a mysterious parasitic outbreak. Told from the perspective of those who were there and saw what happened, the bay unfolds over 24 hours through people's cell phones, 911 calls, webcams, and whatever else could be used to document the nightmare in Claridge. What follows is a nerve-shredding tale of a small town plunged into absolute terror. Amy, do you remember the first time that you saw the bay? I think we decided to watch it together. Didn't I think we? we did. I think we did too. I may have watched it alone and then went, you absolutely have to see that. I can't remember if we watched it together or maybe the first you watched time. the beginning and then maybe watch it with you. Whatever it was, we. It's a fairly recent Even watch. if you watched it first, first and made me watch it, I think you maybe watched it first and was like, I'll watch it again with you. It's so good. I think but you're right. Wa- you're right. My first experience watching it was with you. Okay. Yeah. And oh my god, um, <laughs> holy nausea inducing! There's just so much. Okay, a little bit about me. I'm a little bit of a germ phobe. I'm a little. I'm a little bit afraid of like pestilency shit. Yeah. So like. So I mean, let's face it. I'm afraid of everything. That's why I love horror movies because I get just <laughs> like dive into these anxieties of mine. But like. I oh god I just remember there are specific things in this movie like I'm like uh, trying not to make faces as I'm talking about it right now (laughs) which you can't see but it is so like squick you out freak you out with with even the first 20 minutes of the movie Mm -hmm. that my stomach was in a complete knot Mm -hmm. and I was on the edge of my seat Uh the entire movie so this one's big. This one's heavy. This one I this know. one plays on your anxieties for sure. I completely agree. Or mine, anyway. I completely agree. So I think you're right. I think either I watched the full movie and then asked you to watch it and I watched it the same night with you, or I may not have even finished it. I may have only gotten partially into it and was like, I'm stopping because I'm not watching this without my sister. I know there are a lot of people out there who are like over the found footage thing. They're like, it's been done yeah. to death, paranormal activity, Blair Witch, blah de blah. I, I'm a sucker for a good found footage. Yeah. Or you know some some reviews reviewed to this as a mockumentary. Yeah. Um, in my comedy life, I love mockumentaries, like all the Christopher I Guest think, movies and stuff. And I I'm glad you mentioned that because I 
I take issue with the found. This is a, a poor excuse of a found footage, but whatever. We'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I loved this movie. It was very immersive to me. It gets going in like minute two of this movie and it doesn't let up it's a oh, short it really movie does. it's only it's not even an hour and a half it's like an hour 24 yeah but all of it is just absolutely packed with visuals and facts and whatever and so you know it's a shorter ride but it is an intense ride it so it is nightmare fuel for me um, for me, <laughs> I I'm I'm not lying when I say this movie is going to put you off your seafood. It's <laughs> it will. it's yeah. big deal. Um, I do want to make a note here because this is a found footage movie, so so to speak. There are lots of clips. There are lots of interviews. The way the movie is cut is short, choppy segments. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do my best during this script to relay everything that's on the screen. However, there are some areas of the film that I'm just not going to be able to cover. If you have not yet watched this movie, we highly recommend oh, that yeah. you go watch it first and then come back and listen to this episode. You will catch much more than I'm able to cover on this episode. So please, if you have not seen The Bay yet, Go yeah. rent it. Go watch it. Go it's watch it. Really and great. Then come back here, and I will hold your hand and tell you, <laughs> pet your head and tell you it's going to be okay, and ask you who hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so let with that, let's uh, dive right in. Caution! Spoilers ahead. The film opens with a montage of news footage. Various clips discuss environmental mysteries, beach debris, fish kills, dying birds. More and more clips are played, faster and faster, until all of the voices descend into a cacophony of bad news. The very final sentence we hear is that scientists don't know what killed them. After fading to black, we see the text, those events were covered by the media. The following story was never made public. Next, we see a woman in an empty room on a Skype call. We can only see her side of the conversation. The woman, Donna Thompson, who is played by Kether Donahue, introduces herself, saying that she was a communications major assigned to cover the Independence Day celebration in Claridge, Maryland in 2009. She says that this video is the first time she's speaking out about the disaster that happened while she was there. She seems distracted and upset, saying that she didn't know this topic would still be so difficult to discuss. She's able to continue, saying that she and some others have been trying for three years to bring the events of July 4th, 2009 to the public eye, and that thanks now to a government, quote, leak website, all of the footage recorded on that day has finally been obtained. Oh, yeah. It's called uh, the... Like, GovLeaks. GovLeaks. And I'm like, oh, Oh, is it WikiLeaks? WikiLeaks, right. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. While she says this last sentence, we begin to see clips of a dunking booth, people jumping into swimming pools, a crab eating, a crab eating contest, all the stereotypical events of a small town America July 4th celebration. Sorry, maybe I'm gonna try not to make faces <laughs> while you describe because already I'm like, she's she's like a crab eating contest and I'm over here going, and I'm, gonna like, I'm gonna make her stutter and I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> Donna says that she's not sure if anyone's going to see this or if anything's going to happen to her um, as a result of the footage going public, but that for her to be able to move on from this, she has to make sure that people know the entire story. 
We cut to audio of a Claridge area radio show on WBAY, talking to listeners and wishing them a happy Independence Day, while footage of parade goers plays, showing kids eating snow cones, people on red, white, and blue bikes, and lots of smiling faces. While we see more footage of sunbathers and water skiers, Donna narrates that she spent her summers here. It's where she had her first crab dinner and her first summer kiss. We see a man in a blue cap shaking hands and talking to a small group of people, and Donna introduces him as John Stockman, the mayor played by Frank Deal. She says that Stockman runs a local vacuum shop and one day just up and decided to run for mayor. She then introduces the Wyckoffs as footage of the couple plays, showing them shopping at a local artisan's booth. Donna says that the Wyckoffs were very involved in the community, but unfortunately, their entire family died that day. This, like, opening scene with footage of people gathering together. (laughs) What's weird is watching this movie post-2020, it already is playing on my anxieties of crowds of people we watched this the first time pre-2020 and Mm -hmm. to watch it again after i was like oh dude like yeah (laughs) i don't think i could have watched it in 2020 i think it would have been no i would have been like you know what let's just go watch bob's burgers because like i am not being able to handle this (laughs) archive footage of donna suddenly appears on screen with her practicing and flubbing an on-camera introduction of herself as a news reporter Donna voices over her own video here, asking how come nobody told her her pants were that tight. They're very tight. <laughs> They're pretty tight. They look cute on her. Right. She's got she's a good selling, butt. But she's like, selling it. Yeah. But. Um, Donna says that every time she sees this footage, it's difficult for her and that she tends to overcompensate with humor to hide her emotions. So Donna is me. <laughs> yeah. Donna is our family. Donna is I'm uncomfortable. Me. I'm going to crack a joke at my own expense. Yep. As footage of the DJ comes on screen to switch the music up from a piece from our town to something more upbeat, Donna says in voiceover that at the time, she was just an intern excited to talk to the people in Claridge that day. More footage of Happy Townspeople plays, and we get a quick on-screen interview with a smiling young woman who appears to be a local beauty queen. She's wearing a sash reading Miss Crustacean and a bejeweled blue and silver headpiece shaped like a crab. It is... it's everything you want it to be. <laughs> it's so small town. Like I love it. Miss Crustacean. I don't know that I'd want to be a beauty queen uh, associated with crabs, but maybe that's just <laughs> me. I'm the, I'm the crab queen. Yeah, you don't want to be the crabs queen. We see shots of Donna's first news report that day. She says they're in Claridge, Maryland to celebrate the annual Eastern Chesapeake July 4th party. Shots of people wearing crab-themed shirts and hats and a table full of apple pies and desserts are shown as she speaks. We then see Mayor Stockman announcing the 57th annual Claridge Crab Eating Spectacular. (laughs) (laughs) He speaks into a microphone while a line of yellow-shirted townsfolk sit behind a long picnic table up on a platform, readying themselves for the crab eating contest. Donna is standing next to the table, asking the cameraman if she's in a good spot for him to get some footage while the contest begins. Donna continues in voiceover, giving a brief history of the town. While she speaks, we see a group of kids participating in a crab walk race and people getting autographs from and pictures with Miss Crustacean. Donna says that the population in Claridge is about 6,200 people and that there's a large poultry farm industry in the town with a lot of money being made from summer tourism. 
we see footage of a dunking booth with people watching and enjoying the sights. The booth attendant asks who wants to be dunked next, and a middle-aged woman in a pink shirt boldly steps forward, saying she wants to be dunked. In the next shot, she splashes down into the booth as a man hits the target. She emerges from the water with her arms raised, smiling and refreshed. With the weather here right now being over 100 like every single day for the past two weeks, I, know, I could I use wanna, a good-ass dunking booth I right know, now. I want to climb in that dunking booth. Are oh you kidding God, me? Oh my God, it's so hot. In the next scene, we see Donna and Mayor Stockman sitting at a table together, while Donna's voiceover says that this was her first interview ever. She cringes as she says that she even made a bald joke about him while he was sitting there. <laughs> he takes it in good stride in the footage and says how much he thinks the town will enjoy the festivities. As the screen zooms in on Stockman's face, Donna says in voiceover that she had no idea at the time just how responsible he was for the horror that was about to come. Oh, politicians. <laughs> oh, this freaking mayor. Oh, this this freaking mayor. I do not trust him. I think that's just because why. that's just because you have a I just I just don't yeah, I don't It's a politician thing. It's not a him. I thing. don't like politicians. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> Wait, you don't want to hear my Ron Swanson? No, I don't need your libertarian rantings or whatever it is that he says. <laughs> We see shots of night vision camera footage as Donna narrates, saying that the first signs that something was wrong happened about six weeks before July 4th. Audio of a news report plays, saying that the bodies of two scientists had been discovered in Chesapeake Bay after being reported missing for about 36 hours. In the footage, we can see a diver approaching two floating items in the water, which we can assume are the two bodies. The news report continues that the cause of death is unknown, but that the body showed wounds that were suspected to be shark bites, and that the two scientists were in the area to conduct studies on pollution levels in the bay. Headshots of a man and woman are put up on screen. We learn from Donna that they were two oceanographers and that they had been keeping a video diary of their studies to send to the Chesapeake Environmental Council. The male scientist Sam, played by Christopher Denham, speaks to the camera, pointing out that the red algae they're finding in the bay act indicates bacterial growth and that they believe it's feeding off of the nutrients in the runoff from the chicken plant. Two news anchors discuss the situation, saying that the shark attacks are very rare in the bay, while behind their voiceover, footage is shown of the two bloated, wounded corpses of the scientists. Pretty pretty great. It's pretty effective. It's great, because they look... I mean, you know, I'm not... I haven't really had any hands-on experience with like bloated dead bodies, but these are gross looking and awesome. Mm -hmm. Another scene from Sam's research diary plays with him telling Jacqueline, the other scientist played by Nancy Aluka, that the results have come back from the water analysis and it is not good. High mercury levels, endocrine disruptors, pharmaceuticals, DDT, and a long list of other nasty stuff was found. While Sam reads down the list, we see still photo close-ups of Sam's bloated dead face with his entire face swollen and his lips unable to enclose his bulging tongue. It's like such a shock shot of his face. So these details feel based in reality, that the mm -hmm. type of things that they're running through. And that's because they are to a degree. They, um, Donald uh, Bosch, the president of the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, said in an interview with the Baltimore Sun that they got enough of the science to be dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, he said that the film accurately portrays the Chesapeake 
as in diminished ecological health. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But scientists in uh, a Baltimore Sun article from 2012 did kind of weigh in on what they thought about the accuracy of what the film portrayed and whether or not it was accurate as far as like what goes down in this movie. A security camera from the pier where the bodies are laid out is shown, with one of the men on scene saying that bull sharks don't normally bite the chest and abdomen area of a person, but that's where we can see that a lot of major wounds were found on the bodies. They're like chewed up. Back in an entry from the scientist's video diary, Jacqueline says that the toxins in the water are following the current of the bay and that they're headed right for a small town on the coast, Claridge, Maryland. In voiceover, Donna says that some of the citizens of Claridge did raise concerns with the water quality in the bay, and we see shots from a political luncheon with Mayor Stockman. One of the townspeople stands up and says that the mayor's putting chicken shit in the town's water. The mayor pushes back, saying that the EPA continues to test water contaminants in the bay and that it's their responsibility. Next, we see a website called The Eco Spy, facts on the ground from an environmental secret agent. Oh, God. <laughs> Text overlaying the site says that this site was shut down on July 5th, 2009, the day after the 4th of July celebration. Video from the site shows an activist breaking into the Claridge chicken plant, and in a night vision video, he says that each of the barns we see holds about 32,000 chickens, and that 45 million pounds of chicken waste from the plant is dumped into the bay every single year. He shows just how close these massive piles of waste are to the bay, and we see a backhoe next to the pile in position to push it all right into it's the like water. It's like very, very tall hills of chicken shit. It is huge mounds, mounds of, of chicken shit. Yeah. It's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Back at the political luncheon, a second citizen says that she doesn't know why there's so much doom and gloom about the bay. Everyone's kids have grown up there, and there have been no problems, and there's a smattering of applause and cheering at this statement. Mayor Stockman then speaks, saying that, yes, although many citizens gave him a hard time about building a new desalination plant, it gave Claridge the ability to increase capacity for chicken farming in the area. Donna says in voiceover that the desalination plant helped increase the water supply not only for farming but also for citizens to use, and that everyone just assumed that the plant would remove harm harmful substances from the water. While she says this, we see footage of people swimming, the lady splashing happily in the dunk tank. There's no indication here of anyone thinking that the water's not safe. Footage of Mayor Stockman continues with him saying, you know, this is the best darn water I've ever tasted while taking a big drink from a solo cup full of water. That he to totally didn't drink out of a plastic bottle from somewhere else. <laughs> to the sounds of cheers and clapping all around him. Yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure that he wasn't just like, yeah, if you could give me some Avion in this cup uh, real fast. Yeah. Donna speaks again, saying that people were worried about water and the economy, but that it wasn't their focus. They were just living their day-to-day -day lives. We see footage of one of the main roads in Claridge with Independence Day revelers all around, but suddenly a woman's scream breaks through the sound of the crowd. It's the dunking booth woman walking down the middle of the street yelling for someone to do something. Next, we see a swimming pool and hear a child screaming for her mommy. Her mother leads her away from the pool, continuously asking her what's wrong. We flash back to the dunking booth woman who keeps asking what's happening to her, clearly in a lot of distress. 
She begs for someone to find her husband and her kids, and the camera moves closer. She has broken out in large blisters all over her face, chest, and arms. She is, like, covered. Covered in boils. These boils, these rashy bits are nasty yeah, looking. They're really gross. Yeah. Um, I didn't look up who did the make. Did you have... Um, do you know who did makeup for this? Did you look that up? At yeah, all? this is uh, the makeup is done. Well, the makeup department head is Star Jones. Not that's not, not <laughs> Dif- Star Jones. Different Star Jones. Not that Star Jones. <laughs> um, and he's known for Star Trek Generations from 1984, the movie, and also Hunger Games, Mocking Jay Part One, and uh, The Abyss. So he's he's Ooh. had he's had he has worked uh, as a makeup director on. Some good stuff. Yeah, and a, a sort of across well, year, years of work. He has yeah. a, a long career. Well, this was a busy movie for him because uh, we will see what happens. Everyone watches her, but they do nothing as she begs for someone, anyone, to take her to the hospital. We change over to a scene with Donna reporting live from the crab eating contest, and one of the participants begins to cough and struggle. We then see the little girl again, and as her mother says she's never seen anything like it, there's a close-up of the girl's arm, covered in the same huge blisters as the woman. Back at the crab-eating contest, the struggling participant turns away from the table and starts to vomit. Oh, give me a bucket. Donna asks the cameraman, hey, are you getting that? Come on. Please watch this man (laughs) puke. Like, oh, God, Donna, come on now. Oh, man. Another man stands up and vomits on the table. The crowd is disgusted and confused, and they begin to disperse as one by one, all of the contestants start to be sick on the table, over the side of the pier, into the bay, and onto the ground. It's like massive Goonies. You know in like Goonies when he's telling the story about, and he starts making the noise about throwing up, and then everybody starts throwing up all over the theater, and it was horrible. Yes. Because he's like giving a confessional or whatever. That's what the scene feels like. It's just like one person pukes, another person pukes, seven other people puke. Or like that scene from I'm the, puking. Like that scene from The Office where Pam's peeling her egg or it's Dwight's peeling chain. his egg and it's starts a chain reaction of vomit. That's exactly what this scene is like. Yeah. Mayor Stockman approaches Donna's cameraman, asking him to cut the cameras while the chaos goes on behind him. We see the little girl being wheeled into an ambulance on a gurney, and the dunking booth woman continues to wail in the street. Nobody has come to her aid. That is so sad. She's, like, screaming for her husband, yeah. and she's like, somebody needs to take me to the hospital. She's screaming. She's screaming, and she's panicking. And, like, it's so weird. So the street is empty, probably for, like, a parade or, you know, something they're going to do later, and there's all these people on either side of the street just watching her and not doing anything. Well, and I just... I have to, again, pre-2020 versus post-2020, pre-2020. I'd be like, oh, hell no, I'm not going to help her. I'm going to get sick. Yeah, pre-2020, I would have been outraged too. And I am still a little outraged. But post-2020, panic, man. I don't want anybody touching anybody without protective personal equipment, like without PPE um, or gloves on. Don't touch her. You don't know what she has. And and so you see all over her skin. It is just like red and angry and it's on her neck and her arms and ugh, yeah, it's, it's creepy. The footage suddenly changes to a hospital examination room. Donna in voiceover introduces Dr. Jack Abrams played by Stephen Kunkin, the head physician in the ER on July 4th, 2009. Donna states that he would treat over 350 patients that day and would be dead later that night. 
we see Dr. Abrams begin to examine a patient, asking her to remove her overshirt. She's left wearing a tank top, and we can see the angry red blisters covering her entire back and shoulders. Security cam footage is then showed of Dr. Abrams at the nurse's station, and we hear audio of him calling the Center for Disease Control. While we hear him explaining the situation on the phone, saying there's been some kind of outbreak, we see security footage from the waiting room over time. It begins with just a few patients, then more, then fills to overflowing. On screen next is Dr. Williams, played by Robert Trevaler, in the Communicable Disease Department of the CDC. Dr. Abrams' call has been routed to him. Dr. Abrams explains to Williams that he currently has 30 people in the ER waiting room presenting with the same symptoms, lesions on the face, legs, neck, and chest. Williams asks what Dr. Abrams thinks it is, and he says he has no idea. We see Dr. Abrams in the exam room next, asking a patient who's full of blisters if she's spent any time around livestock lately or if she spends a lot of time in the sun. She says no to both. Footage of his interview with the next patient starts with her saying she has pain all the way into her bones, and Dr. Abrams tells her that he has had a lot of people that day with the exact same symptoms. So they have an outbreak. There it is an outbreak. Is some, I mean, something's happening. Something's happening. In the next scene, we see dash cam footage taken from a police vehicle. Two men chat about where to go for lunch, and in voiceover, Donna introduces them as Officer Paul, played by Jody Thompson, and Officer Jimson, played by Michael Beasley. From the dash cam, we see Officer Paul hit the siren and say, what is that, as we see a large lump on the side of the road. Donna narrates that the officers reported the first death at 12.42 p.m. I just want to say um, when the CDC was on the phone with the doctors, I found that like kind of super triggering. Oh, God, just, I know. Especially when he's like asking him questions and like what is what are the symptoms and how many does he have and how many cases and all of that stuff. Yeah, and he's like, okay, um, I'm going to run you through like some scenarios of like what this probably is. Like kind of smug. Yeah. And I'm like... Okay, so first of all, don't be a dick. But you see that facade drop pretty oh, quickly. It, he realizes really early on that it's, it's like an oh shit was, moment. As soon as the doctor says 30 cases, he's like, wait, how many cases do you have? Yeah, not like two or three. 30. 30. Three zero. Yeah. Officer Paul goes to check on the body to look for a pulse but looks up at Officer Jimson and states that this guy's dead, but he doesn't see any wounds or gunshots. Officer Paul radios in to report the deceased young white male. In the next scene, we're presented with a shot of a young man on a boat. A woman films him and then turns the camera to show that she's holding a young infant in a car seat. The man takes the baby and says they're all going to Claridge to watch some fireworks. In voiceover, Donna introduces the man and woman as Alex Talmot, played by Will Rogers, and Stephanie Talmot, played by Kristen Connolly, who we love and know from Cabin in the Woods, yeah. as Dana. Mm-hmm. Donna says that the couple had rented a boat to sail to Claridge for the festivities and to visit with Stephanie's family. So she's she's from Claridge. Claridge, by the way, is not a real town. No, it's not. I mean, there's a lot of little small Chesapeake Bay towns probably that... This kind of mirrors, I would guess. But yeah, Claridge yeah. is made up. The movie is made up as well. And one of the, this would be maybe a, a good time to mention that Barry Levinson did not set out to make an eco horror film at first. Yeah. He said he was going to initially, initially make 
a documentary about the Chesapeake Bay and the fact that it's 40% dead. Mm-hmm. So those um, uh, those blips in the beginning, those news clips in the beginning, I did look to see if those were actual news clips. I did not find the answer on that. I think I mean, some of them are real. Some I think of them some are of them real because like, they referred to like CNN's situation room and I, I right. recognized uh, a couple of the anchors too. Right. So, so so he says in this uh, this interview that he did a little research and found that Frontline had done a terrific documentary about uh, the Chesapeake and all of its problems, and he didn't hear a lot of people really up in arms about the dangers. And since he said they made a great documentary and nobody paid attention, he said, how can I do it better? So he decided to make the sort of worst case scenario yeah. and turn it into like something that would actually scare the shit out of people. Scare the absolute fuck out of people. It worked for me. It worked for me. I'm so, I'm affected every time I watch it. I'm still freaked out. Like I, I did say because we rewatched it for a a review like today or I did anyway. And I said, I'm like, I know I'm not going to be eating shrimp or seafood for a while. No, it's no. going to fuck me up. I know it. But I'll do yep. it. Yep. I'll do it for you. And we Levinson. haven't even gotten to the bad part yeah. yet. A black screen is shown where we hear an audio transcript of a 911 call. The caller says that something bad has happened. When the dispatcher presses for details, all the caller can say is that it's her neighbor and she's bleeding really badly. The caller tells the dispatcher that she's retrieved her camera, and so from her point of view, we see a woman outside of her window, presumably the neighbor that the caller's referring to, with a large amount of blood down the front of her shirt. Oh, God, this is so horrible. Oh, here we go. It gets worse. Yeah. The dispatcher continues to press for details, but the woman just continues to scream and cry about her bleeding neighbor. The woman outside stops and bends over just long enough to vomit an absolutely torrential amount of blood yeah, onto the ground. It's really upsetting to see. It is a shitload of blood yeah. just spewing from her mouth. It is re- something's real fucking wrong. This, um, so that I love absolutely love how this scene was done mm-hmm. and throughout the movie. Um, it's vignettes. It's different vignettes. Mm-hmm. Things shot in different ways. There's like security cam footage. There's clips on people's webcams. There's mm-hmm. stuff that people took with their cell phones, obviously. There's yeah, like 911 face, calls. 911 calls, FaceTime videos. It's mm-hmm. all very like new media. Yeah. And I absolutely love it. But here it looks, it almost looks like it could be a Nest cam. It's not because this is a little early for that technology. Yeah. But it's like a digital camera that somebody's shooting outside of their own window while they're doing the 911 call. But this woman is like vomiting blood. And the first thing I thought was it's zombies. Because oh, yeah. I'm like, it's it's the rage virus or something. Yeah. Like you see this person like they lose all their faculties yeah, she's they're just vomiting like blood screaming. she's yeah. screaming and running with like blood running down her shirt i'm like i just i love this i absolutely love how this was done Go it was ahead. funny too because you were talking about you know all the different cameras that are around like surveillance cams and this and that and like people i think people ding found footage a lot 
because of cameras because they're like why would that camera be on why would that camera be running there wouldn't be a camera there blah 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 i agree for the most part i have seen some yeah. absolutely shitty found footage where i'm like why didn't why didn't you just make oh a movie? we're just in the apartment now and they're talking to each other yeah it's right and so at the beginning of the scene with the you know it starts out with just the audio of the 911 call and the lady screaming about her neighbor and Right, and then all of us. I, I started to write. I was like, mm, "So how do we have a video footage of a nine one one call?" And then, like in a split second, she's like, "Hang on, I grabbed my camera," and I'm like, "Okay, okay." Well, at least they threw in the explainer. I know it, it was kind of like I. If I see a woman like vomiting blood on my front lawn, the first thing I'm not going to do while I'm on the phone with nine one one is be like, "Hang on, let me also film this." So like, I know. So you know, there are that, some weak spots in the found footage explanations in this movie, but it's maybe still that very just, effective. Well, maybe that just speaks to the fact that you're a better person than some people because there is <laughs> a lot of that. there is a lot of viral shit out there where somebody probably should have put the camera down and help. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I don't see that happening in this time frame i don't see this happening in 2012 as yeah. much as i would expect to see something like this in 2020 there's gonna be footage probably from multiple angles yeah today yeah back in the downtown area of claridge donna's cameraman calls out to her as we see yet another ambulance with its siren on driving down the street Donna literally chases after the ambulance asking her cameraman if anyone told him what's going on we cut over to dash cam footage and one of the officers in the vehicle states that the 911 system is about to go down because it's overloaded with calls. Atlantic Hospital is overcrowded and a town clinic has people waiting outside on the curb. The officer continues that he heard it's some sort of killer virus so everyone should be sure to wash their hands. I was like, come on. Oh my god, everybody pick the song that like you wash your hands to to make sure you're washing. Do you remember like at the beginning of the pandemic, everybody was like, if you wash your hands to the tune of this and this first verse, then that's like a full minute or whatever. Oh my I god. Remember. People were like lysoling their grocery bags. <sighs> um good, good times. Good times. So are you a sadist? Why did we choose this for Fourth of July weekend? Because it have fun. You know why? It's because this movie actually freaks me out, and yeah. it takes so much for horror movies to freak me out. Yeah. We'll talk about it once we get into reviews. Yeah. But like this movie affects me, where a lot of horror movies really don't effective. really affect me because I'm yeah. numb and have no soul. I'm not real sure, but <laughs> this, this week, movie gets me, yeah. and so that's why I picked gets, it. Gets us right where we live. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I literally wrote down cringes in pandemic. <laughs> Dispatch then calls into the car and gives them an address to report to as there's a report of a deceased citizen. As they pull up to the address, Sheriff Lee Roberts, played by Andy Stahl, comes into frame. As officers Paul and Jimson get out of the car, Sheriff Roberts says that the woman's name is Marla Spatafora and that he found the body in the yard. Quote, her guts were tore out and her tongue was cut off. He speculates that maybe it was a domestic incident, and the shot cuts to Donna reporting from the scene, talking to Marla's neighbor, Jerry. Jerry says that Marla was a wonderful woman, and when Donna asks him if domestic violence like this happens in the town a lot, the man looks confused and scoffs at her. Donna says in voiceover that she was just trying to mimic what she thought our news reporter would do, and that watching these scenes back makes her cringe. 
on screen, her cameraman reassures her that she did a good job as Donna just sits there and doubts herself. It was kind of a thing to be like, so do um, your neighbors get stabbed by their husbands often? Like it was not, she was obviously so like wet behind the ears. I know. She tried. She tried. The next shot is from a surveillance cam at one of the piers showing a boat setting sail with a text overlay stating that Alex and Stephanie Talmot set out for Claridge at approximately 2.20 p.m. with an estimated travel time of seven hours. Stephanie films the peaceful waters cooing to her baby and showing Alex piloting the boat. We suddenly cut to a young girl on FaceTime. She's telling the person she's talking to to look at this. She pans the camera down to her arm, and it is covered in these same large, angry lesions. It makes my skin hurt. It it's uh, it's uncomfortable. Like for like anybody who's ever had a, have a fever blister, don't judge me. Or like an <laughs> or like eczema or like any kind any of kind of skin. blisters, mm-hmm. any type of a type of rash or blisters or something that feels like a sunburn. To see this, you're just like, oh, god. oh my god, it has to hurt. Hello. Donna says in voiceover that this girl is named Jennifer, who's played by Jennifer Birch. Donna continues that when they looked at Jennifer's call list, they were able to see that she was in contact with her friend the entire day. Jennifer's FaceTime call continues with her saying that every time she tries to call medical services, all the calls just go straight to voicemail and that the lesions really hurt. In the next scene, we're back to an entry from the oceanographer's diary two months prior to July 4th. Sam says that they have discovered an infected fish and they're going to use a camera to inspect the inside of the fish's mouth. Mm -mm. (laughs) Here we go. Inside the fish, we see a slew of parasitic larvae. Nope. Sam explains that the larva gets there by the fish ingesting the eggs and then the eggs hatch and then the eggs hatch inside the fish's Mm -mm. stomach. No, stop. No, he he says that he's never actually seen larva like this. The scene ends and text on a black screen states that this video report was sent to Mayor Stockman, who's chairman of the Chesapeake Environmental Council. There are no records that he ever responded. Hmm. He sucks. Uh, Dick move. So um, the film, the footage of like the little creepy crawlies on the inside of the fish are Fucking disgusting. They're so nasty. I ugh. anyway. There's a there's a lot of there's this is this particular podcast is gonna have a lot of a lot of sound. <laughs> it's just there's so much. It makes it's like makes your jaw tighten up and you just have to like bathe in bleach. Don't bathe in bleach. No, but I don't inject bleach either. But I want to right now. It's very squicky. It is very, very squicky. Uh, Unclean. (laughs) (laughs) We then see Donna shrugging in frustration as a police vehicle drives away. The cameraman asks her what's wrong, and she says she just heard on the police radio that there's been another murder. We cut to the two news anchors from earlier saying that the body of Marla Spatafora was found in a very mutilated condition. And while they continue, we see footage of Donna on another supposed, quote, murder scene as the body is picked up by EMS. Donna stays in the shot as EMS carries the body away and someone off screen tells her that she's really pushing her luck. The news anchors in an off-air but still recorded conversation say that today is going to be a real career maker for Donna. 
The cops on scene continue to try to chase Donna and the cameraman off, but suddenly onlookers scream. The sheet has fallen from the body that EMS is oh, carrying, God. Yeah. and we get a brief glimpse of a corpse with a gaping stomach wound <laughs> and what appears to be a missing lower half of its face. Beast, yeah. Some shit went down. I yeah, yeah, don't yeah, know yeah, what yeah, shit yeah, went yeah, down, yeah, but this yeah, thing yeah, is yeah, yeah. mauled. It's like flesh-eating flesh eating disease or something. It's like It's so, missing. Parts that were supposed to be there were no were no more there are no more there no and it's very it's not okay it's very cool it's it is really yeah. cool to look at it is one of it is one of those ones that I I'm like all right I gotta know who 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 is who is behind who is behind this beautifulness there's really not a whole lot of information oh, out the there on the, on the special effects unfortunately of the base this whole movie like snuck under the radar I really feel like this is a movie not enough people know about yeah maybe it's just because they do know about it and they hate found footage and so nobody talks about I it know. but it does, I love this movie. watching it does feel a little bit of a dare to me it feels what <laughs> a little bit like a dare like oh. <laughs> you watch it because it's a little bit of a dare like you know you're gonna be freaked out and squicked out and stuff when you watch it's, it. It's like when your friend asks you, hey, you want to go poke a dead body with a stick? <laughs> You're like, it's going to be nasty. I but mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Do you say no to the opportunity? I mean, I might. We'll call, uh, you know, call I will somebody call after. after I poke it with a stick. <sighs> Donna says in voiceover in the scene that she's not sure how she stayed convinced for so long that what she was covering was actually a series of murders. The next footage we see is identified on screen as an email attachment to the CDC from Dr. Abrams. He's shown in surgery, and while two attendants assist him, he points out the massive lesions and rot on a person's leg, saying that he believes that the leg will continue to get progressively worse with whatever it is moving onto the entire body. We see Williams and his team from the CDC observing the video while Dr. Abrams continues that he believes they're up against a parasite, something that is literally eating its way out of the body from the inside. He pleads with the CDC, please figure out what the hell this is. So this, the, these infections, according to the Baltimore Sun article, are backed by fact. At one point, the doctor health officials pondered what's in the water that's afflicting people they show pictures of an also rated human leg, human leg and talk about how some of the people waiting in the water or swimming in the bay have gotten nasty skin infections from the deadly bacterium Vibrio vulnificus. Yeah, they even talk about that later. Um, they bring that one up by name like later in the movie. Yeah. And just one more thing about that. Um, Bosch says that that's the real threat. There's been cases of serious Vibrio illnesses and skin infec infections traced to contact in summertime with war but warmed by the bay waters mm -hmm. so like people are really getting these kinds of skin infections i um will not look that up on google images i know and I, <laughs> i'm not checking that out uh, no Those i like days. fakey horror i don't like real life shit <laughs> i wish you guys could see the face amy is making right now Ooh, it's just <laughs> She might hit the floor in a second. If y'all hear a thud, she fell out. Can the brain vomit? <laughs> 
The screen cuts to black, identifying that we're about to hear a radio interview with Mayor Stockman. The interviewer, George Corey, played by Jonathan Maverick, asks what's going on. They've never seen murders like this in Claridge. And the mayor responds that he's been so busy with the re-election on July 4th, but he's been in touch with the police and that it's still an ongoing investigation. Right, 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 right. This guy is a wiener. He continues that there are a lot of rumors being spread, but he wants to help set the record straight. Mayor Stockman says that in warmer temperatures, bacteria levels can rise, potentially causing rashes and intestinal distress, and that this is just a fact of life in the Bay. He warns citizens from listening to the crazy stories they're hearing and says that if people are susceptible to bacterial infections or just want to play it safe, they just need to limit their time in the water. We return to another video entry from the scientists with Jacqueline gravely concerned that the bacteria level they're seeing is much higher than they usually see after a storm and that the fertilizer in the chicken plant runoff is helping to feed it. Sam then cuts into the belly of a fish with an absolutely gut-churning amount of white goo oozing out of it. Oh, <laughs> it's so gross. That's it's- great. He, like, turns away from it like he's going to be sick. So, like, it smells, I guess. Oh, God, it's horrifying. (laughs) Mayor Stockman's radio interview plays again. He says that if he gets any facts that change what he says, he'll come back on the air. A home video shot on a fishing boat, noted to be just six miles north of Claridge, shows a group of people fishing and having a good old time. One of the men starts to reel in a fairly large fish, and as he holds it by the mouth to unhook it, he notices something strange. Just then, a large insect-looking thing crawls out of the mouth of the fish and onto the man's arm. It's like this big black, like, beetle, cockroachy... Scarab. I don't know what it is. It's gross. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just, this is just going to be the episode of... <laughs> it's, it's involuntary at this point. Like, I can't help it. <laughs> I think the thing is called a. (laughs) (laughs) He screams and he drops the fish, trying to brush the thing off of him while people around him scream. He finally knocks it loose onto the ground, and while someone tells everyone to stay back, we hear the man say that the thing bit him and it crawls across the floor of the boat and goes over the side back into the water. I like, and again, I say, I like how we both had the we're like we have the guts to do the bay on podcast, meanwhile, and we're both just like. Meanwhile, if a, if a June bug is stuck to my finger, I'm like, ah, I, 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 I. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> Get out! Like, oh, like, oh, like, oh. <laughs> oh God. Anyway, we go back to radio host George Corey, who says he's been getting some wild reports from people around town about what's going on. They suggest that maybe drugs are floating in the air or there's been an invasion by a satanic cult. It's always a satanic cult. While we hear people call in suggesting Al Qaeda, pesticides, global warming, or flu shots. Flu shots are behind this sudden influx of sick people. When someone said flu shots, I was like, Jesus fucking Christ. I wrote that down. It's the gay frogs. Probably. Oh, no, don't you dare go down an Alex Jones rabbit hole. I'll punch you. Return of the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> we get more footage of Alex and Stephanie on their boat trip to Claridge looking peaceful and happy. Stephanie looks concerned as she tells Alex that she's not able to reach her parents on the phone, but Alex just says they'll probably meet them at the pier in Claridge at the agreed-upon time. He's not terribly worried at this point. 
Another scientist video entry dated June 2nd, 2009, finds Jacqueline behind a table with multiple dead fish laid out in front of her. She says all the fish have been mutilated, pointing out that the tongue is missing out of some of them and that all the others appear to have been bitten. She says this is really confusing to her because, quote, fish don't bite fish. So this is not like yeah, fish just, fish like, just swallow fish. Yeah, they like, just go gunt and yeah, and then the fish whole, is gone. But they don't like fish. They these don't. have been like gnawed on. Like they're. <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Why do we do this to ourselves? The next scene cuts to a teenage girl primping and posing for the camera. She grabs the camera and turns it to film her boyfriend, who says he doesn't want to end up on the internet. They walk out together to a small pier, and the boy tries to convince her to take her shirt off. Fucking teenagers. Every time. (laughs) I know. She hesitates, but then doesn't anyway, telling him that he better jump in after her. She plunges into the water, telling him that it feels awesome, and now it's his turn to get in. He says no, and suddenly the girl jumps and shrieks, acting as if something in the water has touched her or bitten her. He thinks she's kidding, but she jumps and shrieks again and then suddenly goes under. The boy jumps into the water, still holding the camera, and the water-damaged footage shows splashes while we hear both of them screaming. The water suddenly turns red, and the shot freezes on the girl's terrified, screaming face. This is great. It harkens back to Jaws in a really great way. Yeah. And it's... You don't see it because it's wa- because it's water damaged footage. Right. It cuts in and out, and it's a really creative way to handle the special effects here. You mm-hmm. don't get to see much, but you don't have to. Yeah, um, you're just it is t- kind of terrifying because it's skewed and you don't really know what's yeah. happening. Um, Donna says here in voiceover that this camera was found on the shore weeks later, but that the bodies were never recovered. We go back to the boat where Alex and Stephanie are playfully flirting and cuddling. Donna narrates that when she watches this footage and sees how happy they are, she can't help but think how they're headed towards something incredibly dark and awful. Stephanie jokingly pushes Alex into the water and he swims around saying that some of the water got in his mouth. That's probably not great. Some underwater shots from the divers are shown, murky and green, with a couple of scattered dead fish floating around. It continues with Jacqueline saying that about 100 years ago, the floor of the ocean was entirely seagrass, and there were enough oysters to self-clean it. But now, 40% of the bay is a dead zone, or an area where there's not enough oxygen in the water to sustain any life. This is the true figure. Like, yeah. this, is, this is, and I think this was the um, kind of impetus to ask Barry Levinson to do a documentary, yeah. was that 40% dead zone number. So, yeah, not good. Not just here, either. Lots of places. Yeah, no, I know. It's it our our planet's fucked everybody. Thanks for coming. It's all bad. Back in the hospital, Dr. Abrams takes a call from the CDC. He explains that he now has 60 people presenting with the same symptoms. Lesions, rashes, some have gone into anaphylactic shock, and three of them have their tongues half gone. Williams from the CDC is a bit taken aback, while another CDC doctor asks if Abrams has provided an antibiotic. The doctor replies that of course he has, but that in all cases, none of the symptoms have subsided. Frustrated, Dr. Abrams asks if the CDC has any new information for him, but Williams says that they don't. All right, it's time to call house. 
It's oh, time to get him in here. Yeah, no, he could totally They've do established it. that it's not fungal, it's not bacterial, and it's not viral. Give him a whiteboard, guys. He's going to have this figured right, out give in him a half team, an hour. A cane and about 30 Vicodin. I was going to say, and his pills. <laughs> I want to figure it out for you. <laughs> we need house on it now. Uh, Williams from the CDC continues that there could be many things causing this, either bacterial or fungal, and that even last year there was an outbreak of tropical fungus in Vancouver that had spread in three hours, losing about 30 people. I actually looked up, there is a tropical fungus that's usually found in the tropics, but that was found like all up and down the west coast of the U.S., like into Canada. And so it like the specific incident didn't happen, but like the thing they're referring to is a real thing it's like i said it's all bad it's amazing how the body can be destroyed by uh environmental stuff yeah and guess what guess what we did it we did it we did this we did this yay Williams goes back to the point Dr. Abrams made about the missing tongues, and Abrams asks them, check their email. They should have photo attachments to look at. I We never get to see photo attachments of missing tongues, but I'm just going to assume they're gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In another scientist's diary, they're reporting from Claridge, with Sam stating that they believe that they found, quote, the culprit. In this case, a fish. He heads into the boat and examines the fish, showing that parasitic isopods have attached themselves to the fish's gills. With a scope camera, he shows the insides of the fish, saying that whatever is in there has eaten through the fish's tongue. We see dozens of squirming creatures as Sam cuts the fish open, and he says that the isopods have eaten the fish from the inside. Text on a black screen states that this report was also sent to Mayor Stockman, but that again, there are no records he ever responded. I don't want to say this. No. <laughs> Barry Levinson confirmed that those are not CGI, that they are real. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> the little white guys, the little white isopods that he holds up in the tweezers in this scene are well, real. Yeah, so there are such a thing, and they'll talk about it here in a few minutes, called a tongue-eating louse. And I, they are, they are, <laughs> just breathe through it, and Amy, it's gross, but you can do it. But anyway, this is, that's the thing that makes this movie so creepy, as I think he said, like, 80% of the science is real. I'm going to need to play, like, Stardew Valley or Sims <laughs> after this. I think I need We're to. We're just go, gonna go plant flowers in Minecraft and like in Minecraft later. <laughs> We're getting there, I promise. Oh God, here we go. Okay, oh. a new clip on screen is labeled as a video sent to Online MD, so WebMD, and we see a man in obvious pain asking what's happening to him as he pans the camera to his stomach with his shirt pulled up. His stomach writhes and distends as something very large moves beneath the skin of his belly. This is goofy. <laughs> it's pretty stupid. It's goofball. But it's, it just cracks me up because I'm like, oh, yeah, no, something's wrong with you. You hit up WebMD and you're like, either I just have a headache or literally my brain's about to ooze out of my ears onto the floor and then my head will blow up. And so, like... I mean, in this case, yeah. this is definitely this guy's worst case scenario. <laughs> like, either it's indigestion or I'm about to have a parasite, like, come bursting out of my, you know, chest like fucking alien, alien. or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty game, goofy. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> in the midst of all of this, there's one of these great, there's this, 
I like I said, there's multi-media. They oh yeah, they use all of the media. There's so many shots so far I haven't even covered because they're so short and brief, and yeah. the way they're cut makes it hard to narrate. Yeah, but. so there's a really great like text message exchange between this girl Amy and her friend, and she says Holly quote quote unquote Holly shit i just <laughs> ate something weird the text scene reminds me of those horror apps that were super popular in like 2018 oh, where right. it was like it even ends with the friend texting amy amy yeah and it's like download now to find out what happens to amy and i'm like <laughs> man I, I gotta download this like whatever happened to amy did she die we then cut to scenes from the waiting room at the hospital where young Jennifer has managed to make it there. She's still on FaceTime with her friend and she turns the camera to show the throngs of infected people. Jennifer's ailment has progressed, now with lesions on her face, and we see desperate people at the admitting window of the waiting room with screams and demands for someone to just do something. The next text on screen says that the CDC is examining a two-year-old newscast, and a woman says in the newscast that her husband was sick within 24 hours of his feet touching the water. The reporter says that the culprit of the illness was Vibrio vulnificus, and that if the man had survived, he would have lost his arms and legs. Williams pauses the newscast and talks to the other CDC team members, showing them an infrared picture of the leg of one of the citizens of Claridge. It's eaten away, layers of tissue chewed up, and severe damage done. He says that this looks similar to a Vibrio infection, but it's not quite the same. He asks his team what they think they're dealing with here, and nobody seems to have any ideas. I will never go into another uh, body of water as long as I live. I'm. It's hard to want to take a shower, maybe. <laughs> like, yeah, this Vibrio thing, like you said, they that's it's real. Yeah. It's real. And I'm still not gonna look at pictures of it either. <laughs> well, they should. We then go to audio of a voicemail to Stephanie. A woman asks where Stephanie is and that she's not picking up her phone. The woman says that she's at the hospital with Stephanie's dad and that he has a really bad infection that will probably lead to his leg this needing is, to be amputated. Sorry, this is fucking heartbreaking. This moment is so heartbreaking. And this is where I'm like, oh God. Cause she's just like, I can't get to you. Dad's in the hospital. She tells I'm waiting. Yeah. Like, she tells Stephanie not to get off the boat once they get to Claridge. She continues that she also has lesions and that she thinks there are a lot of people in Claridge that aren't going to make it. She tells Stephanie she loves her and that she'll try to call again later. Text on screen tells us that Stephanie never received this voicemail. Her mom telling her, don't come, don't get off the boat. It's bad here. Your dad's getting his leg cut off. I have lesions. Oh, yeah, and they it is. Show, so in the in the midst of this, they're showing like they show security camp footage and they highlight. Oh, of the waiting room. Yeah. Waiting in the chair. And then they show the leg being amputated in the OR. And it's like amidst all of these, like vo the voicemail that she's leaving for Stephanie. Mm -hmm. And it's just heart-wrenching because oh, you're know. like, they're not going to make it back to each other. It's very sad. Back at the CDC, the team of doctors continues to spitball ideas, with one of them saying that while it could be foodborne or even airborne, what they're facing is most likely from the water. They run through a list of things it could be, with one of the doctors saying that if there's any kind of pollution in the water on top of the bacteria, they may be facing a mutation of something existing. 
In the hospital, everything is in chaos as doctors and nurses run around trying to treat patients. One of the staff yells for Dr. Abrams, telling him that the man whose leg he just amputated now has lesions on the other leg. These things are spreading fast and freaking furious. We're taken to footage of a Skype call with Dr. Sacerdoti of the CDC, played by Divakar Shukla, and Dr. Michaels, played by Kenny Alfonso, asking a staffer from the EPA, who is played by Zach Hanner, just what the hell is going on in Chesapeake Bay. The EPA staffer asks what he means, and Dr. Michaels asks if there's anything that could cause this kind of outbreak. The EPA staffer lists pollutants, algae, agricultural runoff, chicken excrement, and oh yeah, whoops, there was a small leak from a nuclear reactor in 2002, but that they weren't expecting it to hit the bay until 2014. What the actual fuck? Yes, Why like, does nobody like know about the, I this 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 uh this movie will do two things for you, make you never want to eat seafood or jump in the water, three things. And it will uh, make you really mad at politicians and government officials. Oh, my God. Because they're like, do your fucking job. Clap, clap. Do your fucking job. Do yeah. your fucking job. Ugh. Dr. New, played by Rasul Jahan, asks if people have been drinking this water. The EPA staffer says, no, this water is brackish, so people wouldn't be able to drink it, but that some of the radiation may have gotten into local wells and that, hmm, well, there is that desalination plant in Claridge. <laughs> so nobody's drinking the water except, wait, yes, they totally are. Yeah. Fucking great. We hear audio of Mayor Stockman again, repeating that with the desalination plant, it will give citizens more water for their personal use. The activist comes on screen again, saying in his sting operation video that the chickens drink up to 2,000 gallons of that water per day, and we know that all their waste is going into the bay. Right, so they're drinking all of the wastewater. With that, radiation. Yep. And pooping it, and or yeah, and which is just going right back into the water to compact. It is not good. It's the circle of life. <laughs> I don't think that's what Elton John had in mind, but hey, there you go. (laughs) The audio of Sam the Scientist listing all the horrible things in the water plays again while we see footage of the dunking booth woman splashing down into the water and then screaming in the street. An on-screen note mentions that the woman, Marcy Bates, died at 11.27 p.m. that night. Dr. Sacerdoti, flabbergasted, asks if the EPA even warns anyone about the radiation, and the staffer says no, it's not in their regulations to test for that in the water. While this conversation plays out over Skype, footage of citizens with lesions, citizens vomiting, and citizens drinking the water is displayed. Dr. Williams says, well, doesn't the EPA regulate the water? And the staffer responds that the water has met all EPA regulatory standards. We get a view of a water quality report card on screen with most of the categories being C's and D's and we zoom in on the drinking water rating. It has earned a D minus. We see a shot again of Mayor Stockman saying that Claridge's water is the best and taking a big sip. Of not of not that water. Of probably not that water, but like people are going to obviously kill themselves with the water that they don't even know is unsafe. We go back to archive footage of Donna from that day with the cameraman setting the camera down and going to stick his head in a waiting pool because he says he's burning up. Donna, in voiceover, says that this is the only time we see her cameraman, Jim, played by Brandon Hansen. She says that Jim died that night and that much of the footage that we see is all thanks to him. 
In the waiting room of the hospital, it is overflowing with desperate people. And Jennifer says to her friend on FaceTime that she doesn't understand how the nurses are just ignoring people while they cry for help. Audio of Dr. Abrams calling the governor's office is heard with panic in his voice. We are then shown a bridge with bumper-to-bumper traffic on it, with a woman and a man arguing inside a car about what could be taking so long. Horns honk while people are at a standstill. Back in the hospital, Dr. Abrams pleads with the man from the governor's office on the phone, telling him that people are dying in Claridge and that the CDC is being incredibly slow. The man at the governor's office says that he'll pass along the message, and then back on the bridge, we see the same line of unmoving, honking cars. Donna narrates that the bridge was shut down for three days and nobody ever made it off of the bridge. She says that through all of her research, she never even discovered who ordered the bridge shut down. Oh, I know who ordered. We know who ordered the bridge shut down. Well, they're not letting people out of Claridge. It's almost like they don't want the story to get out. I don't know. I think maybe the mayor. An email is shown addressed to Donna at the news station and it states... The FBI is at our office. You're not allowed to post your blogs anymore because they don't want to cause any undue fear in the community or some shit like that. Oh, my God. It is signed by Chris, the news station blog editor. Mm -hmm. On screen, footage of Donna from that day begins to play, assumedly after she received that email because she states that there's something called the First Amendment and she positions herself for cameraman Jim to shoot another news report. She introduces herself again, saying that they're live at the 4th of July fairgrounds. Far off in the background, we hear a man screaming and moaning, and she pauses to listen. She asks if Jim heard that, and he says he did, while suddenly a louder blood-curdling scream is heard, and Donna drops her mic. In Donna's Skype call, she tells the man on the other end that she was hearing screams from all different places across the water. She says they were very prominent, and she could hear the horrific pain in the scream she was hearing. This is... It is. It's haunting. Levinson does an amazing job of making you feel some kind of way. Oh, for real. With very little. Because because it's like you have this scene of what's obviously an abandoned celebration, which we, you know, because she's, I think, right by the crab table. Yeah. Everybody's gone. Right. The peaceful waters behind her and you just the way I don't I don't know if they like had people physically standing across the water and doing scream calls from but like oh my god it's yeah. just like scream over here scream over there and it it and feels it's haunting it, it is so surrounded haunting. in death oh and god surrounded and surrounded in suffering not just death surrounded in suffering mm-hmm. and nobody people knows what, what's going on excruciating pain mm-hmm. like people's insides are are disappearing people's tongues are being ripped out people's Mm -hmm. bodies are being torn apart people's uh flesh is being eaten away everybody is in the throes of absolute anguish and it's just this like small little moment of all of the screaming and you really get to feel yeah it it's very terrifying from the police dash cam, we can hear dispatch asking for officers to respond to a nearby call regarding some screaming. Officer Jimson hits the siren and they speed towards the call. And Officer Paul asks if he thinks it might be one of the cults that was mentioned on the radio. Oh, these rumors are just flying all over town. The car pulls up to a house and Jimson gets out to go check it out. He asks Officer Paul to stay in the car and keep an eye out. Jimson knocks repeatedly with no answer and eventually shouts over to Officer Paul that he's going to go in and he opens the front door. Donna, still at the fairgrounds, does another news report, 
with the screams continuing in the background. Her face wears a mask of fear and confusion, not knowing what to say. Back with the officers, we suddenly hear gunshots from inside the house. Officer Paul, startled, gets out of the car and radios in, reporting shots fired. He approaches the house with his gun drawn, calling out to Jimson to say that he's coming in and he opens the door. A text overlay is shown, saying that the following audio has been enhanced to attempt to understand the events that unfolded in this house. Jimson, in distress, says that they're all dying, tears in his voice. Paul says they're not dying, but then screams, what have you done, Jim? Jimson tearfully says that the people were begging him to shoot them. Paul asks what the hell is crawling on everyone, and we hear that there's someone screaming and moaning oddly in the background. Jimson says he doesn't know what it is and that whatever it is, they're eating the flesh of the inhabitants of the house. Paul yells for them to get the hell out of there, and one of the officers notices that the moaning man's tongue is completely missing. They ask him if he cut it off himself, and the moaning man is barely able to articulate, shoot me. Paul begins to yell, saying that one of the things is crawling on him and that it's bitten him. He suddenly says in fear, no, wait, Jim, no, it's me, Paul, and we hear a gunshot. The moaning man stops. We hear Paul beg yet again for Jimson not to do this, and we hear another gunshot. Officer Paul goes silent. So this audio scene is goofball. I'm sorry. No, it It isn't until the end with the no, no, it's me, Paul, that you get back into that uncomfortable space you've been squirming around in. No, And I think it's because they narrate just a little too much. They give you a... What's that? It's crawling on them. They're eating its flesh. Right. Oh my God, your tongue is missing. Did you cut it out yourself? No. I think I would have preferred it to feel a little more authentic, but as as it is, it kind of reads a little bit like Andy in a tape-recorded conference meeting. Yeah. Now I'm cutting off Phyllis's arms and legs with a chainsaw. Yeah, it's not It's not great, but I mean, this does take you out of it a little bit, but honestly, for me personally, this is one of the very few moments in the movie that does that. It's Everything not a deal, else it's feels. Not a, I'm not saying it's a deal breaker. No, 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 no. I'm just but saying I noticed it's a goofy I scene. I completely agree with you. Yeah. We next see that the following audio is a radio transmission received by the Coast Guard. Cessna Airplane 157 calls in, asking what the hell's going on, as we see aerial footage of a huge mass of dead fish. The man in the Cessna describes what he's seeing to the Coast Guard, who has taken him back. At the CDC, Williams is looking at a photo received from the research professor at the University of Maryland. The photos the CDC are looking at are of the Samothoa exigua, or sea lice. Dr. Sacerdoti says that these isopods are usually found in the Pacific, but that over the last few years they've shown up in the Atlantic. Last year, they found a two and a half foot specimen who was trying to burrow into a submarine thinking it was a dead whale. Williams is in disbelief, asking how in the world they're getting into the water supply through a filtration system, and a CDC staffer asks, well, what about the larva? Williams says now they have more questions than answers, and that what they really need to do is figure out what happened to the two dead divers. We go to another scientist video diary, two miles off the coast of Claridge, taken three weeks prior to July 4th. Sam says that they're going to head out to take a closer look at the parasites. He comments about how beautiful the surroundings are and that you'd never know what was lurking just under the surface. We see Sam splash down into the water to scuba dive with Jacqueline following behind him. In an underwater cam, we see them both swimming with Sam pointing something out up ahead. The camera zooms down to a dead fish at the bottom of the bay covered in huge isopods. 
Corpse after corpse of fish and crab is seen, all swarming with these creatures. Suddenly, an enormous isopod crashes through one of the lenses of Jacqueline's diving goggles, and we see the water turn red. The two scientists swim for their lives, and in voiceover, Donna states that they had made their way right into a school of fully grown isopods, not the sea lice variety and not the larva. She says this is what killed them, and what also killed the two teenagers off the pier. She wonders aloud whether authorities viewed this footage or if they just chose not to let anyone know about it. Yeah, it's like a piranha. It's like watching a piranha like eat a carcass. It's, yeah, it's um, these things are intense yeah. and, and very predatory. We see more archive footage of Donna taken at about 9 p.m. the night of July 4th. She asks her cameraman, Jim, if he hears what she does, and she listens closely to hear the sounds of a radio or a jukebox playing from inside a waterfront restaurant mixed with a ghastly moaning sound. They cautiously approach the source of the moaning, and Donna spots a small puddle on the ground. She bends down to inspect it and looks up to see a dead woman hanging over the roof of the restaurant. Just then, blood falls onto Donna's face and she screams and begins to run. Nope. This is like one of the very few, nope. what I would call like jump scares in the movie. Break out um, the, break out the bleach. <laughs> it, it, but it's effective because... Um, Break out the bleach, dude. Break out the freaking flamethrower. I'm just going to burn my face off and start over with a new one. I don't need I don't need dead person parasite blood all over me at all. Dr. Abrams is back on a Skype call with the CDC asking what they suggest he does. Williams of the CDC responds and says that his suggestion would be for Abrams and his staff to just leave the hospital. Abrams says that his staff left 20 minutes ago and Williams says that it that was a wise decision. He continues that at this point it's too late and that Abrams really should leave because it's a miracle he hasn't infected already. Abrams kind of makes a face here, so I'm, cool. I'm. No, it's more a face like, yeah, sure is a miracle. I'm not infected already. Right. Like he's that, yeah. right. I'm totally not even that. I am not infected. Abrams is incredulous, saying that he has people in massive pain there waiting for treatment. He says he's been amputating limbs all day and he can't just leave. All Williams can say is, "We're sorry." The Abrams CDC is a, Abrams is just uh I he's to me Abrams is the hero of this movie. Oh to yeah. Me. I mean Abrams we already like know he is not he will not waver. He will not leave his patients behind. He will, he's like I'm going to I will not leave my post. No, he won't. No, yeah. Yeah. Well, and like we already know cuz Donna said earlier in the movie like he dies later that night. So like he died trying to save he's others gonna stick it out because yep. he took that hippocratic oath man like he's not just gonna lay down, he's not gonna just be like nah i'm good yeah i'm gonna fuck off to cancun <laughs> <clears throat> ted cruz <laughs> um in surveillance footage from a hospital stairwell jennifer is on facetime with her friend telling her that she needs to go somewhere to get help Jennifer says don't come to the hospital because they're not helping anyone, and her friend says not to worry about it because it's just a rash. Jennifer says that there are dead people all over the place, and the friend asks how can people be dead from just a rash. She also asks Jennifer if her tongue is hurting because hers is hurting really badly. As Jennifer continues to talk to her friend, saying she doesn't want to be alone, the call cuts off. This is the last time we see her. Surveillance footage from the pier is shown with Stephanie and Alex finally arriving in Claridge. Stephanie asks if Alex sees her parents and he says no. I just see a bunch of dead shit in the water. 
In another scene, Sheriff Roberts is in a police cruiser, and from dash cam footage, we can hear him asking Mayor Stockman if he's heard from the governor. The mayor says yes, and that the governor asked if they should declare a state of emergency. The mayor says he told the governor to give him a few more hours to try to get a handle on things. This is a dick move. Yeah, so the governor's calling in and is like, all right, some sh- it sounds like some shit's getting pretty real out there. Do you, you want me to send you some help? And the mayor's like, nah, fam, I got this. Like, I've no, nah, I'm cool. No, we don't want people in hazmat suits running around. God for fucking bid that people think something is wrong. The mayor continues that the CDC doesn't even know if what they're up against is contagious and that for now, they've isolated Claridge from surrounding communities. While he tells the sheriff that he doesn't want people showing up in hazmat suits, Sheriff Roberts can hear screams and cries from outside the vehicle. Mayor Stockman says that there's no media reporting on this except for that student running around with her camera and that he and his deputies need to really get on top of things. Sheriff Roberts says that all contact was lost with his deputies about 30 minutes prior, and Stockman says they shut down all the cell towers, but that shouldn't affect the police radios. This is a dick move. Fuck this guy. (laughs) Stockman tells the sheriff to pick him up so he can see exactly what's going on out there, and the sheriff tells him he'll be there in about five minutes. Donna washes her face off in a fountain, telling Jim she has never been so scared before. Jim notices something on the ground, and looking closer, it's a dead body. Blood covers the man's shirt, and the man's lips and nose appear to be completely eaten away. Oh, yeah. As the camera zooms in on him to get a better look, we see the dead man's eyes move. He's not fucking dead. No. He, oh my. Now he's no face, and his eyes are just like. He's looking around. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Donna screams, and she and Jim flee in horror. In voiceover, Donna makes fun of herself for running in a circle, not knowing where to run. I feel like that would also be me. She says she was just so fucking scared and says that this was the last report that she shot until she made this film. Alex and Stephanie walk down the pier, looking suspiciously into the water as Stephanie, clearly distressed, says that she still can't get in touch with her parents. Alex says that this is the quietest 4th of July he's ever seen, and Stephanie asks him if he really needs to be filming all this. He says, yeah, he wants to prove to her parents that they were there for the, quote, non-festivities. Alex is being a little bit of a dick, but whatever. Well, that's an explainer. Uh, It really is just an explainer. Why are you filming right now? Well, because... A, we're in a movie, but you don't know that. We need this footage. Right. But you're not supposed to know that. So, so I'm going to, yeah, for proof to your parents. There it is. To show my son later. When he's day, older. When he's dating. And Donna breaks in with narration here, saying that by the time Alex and Stephanie arrived in Claridge, over 700 people had died. Alex and Stephanie argue a bit, and suddenly Alex exclaims, what the hell is that? We see a young woman dead on the pier. Stephanie tells him not to get any closer and that she just wants to get the hell out of there. Yeah, so pop quiz here. Okay. What do you do? You are on a boat, mm-hmm. having a nice vacation, whatever, mm-hmm. with your partner and your baby. Mm-hmm. You get off the boat and people are fucking dead in the street. Do okay, you, I'm with you. Do you get back on the boat? Yes. I also get back on the boat. He mentions that, like, where are they supposed to go with, like, they don't have any gas. But, like, at least the boat is 
away from whatever contagion might be in the town. And I'm assuming equipped enough with food in the event that something happened and they had to stay on the boat. But, like, I definitely don't go wander into the middle of the shit to be like, hey, no. what's going on? Nope. There's nobody around and there's a ton of dead bodies. I think I'm going to go deeper into the crap. Back at the CDC, the doctors are in the middle of a video call with a marine biologist from the University of Maryland. He tells them that, yes, a toxic soup of chemicals could cause mutations and that the amount of steroids in the chicken waste going into the bay could exponentially increase both the size and quantity of the isopods. Over the next rapid series of clips, the activist says that the amount of steroids in the chicken feed can turn a baby chick into a full-grown chicken in 42 days when it normally takes six months. We see a brief clip of Mayor Stockman thanking a townsperson for turning on the misters that are spraying the crowd with the affected water. No. Shot after shot of huge isopods, people playing in and drinking the water, and photos of the desalination plant play. Williams of the CDC is finally shown, and he dejectedly asks his assistant to get the White House on the phone. Yeah. Alex and Stephanie have made their way into the downtown area of Claridge, and what they see is not freaking good. No. Corpses litter the street, and no living human is in sight. Donna's voice breaks in, saying that many infected citizens that night decided to wait it out on Main Street, just hoping that someone would drive by and help them. Stephanie tells Alex she wants to call the police and Alex reminds her that there's no cell phone service because the dick mayor turned off the towers. Yep, smart. They decide to go into an open storefront to wait it out. They look around the furniture store checking for dead bodies and Stephanie looks for a landline so she can try to make a call. Alex says he's going to go look around outside to see if he can find anyone on the street at all. Bitch, I am not trying to go find sick people most likely like stay in a store stay on the boat stay 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 stop going places oh look there's some people who have their faces eaten off i should go see i'm gonna go talk to them (laughs) with their non-face back in the police car sheriff roberts has picked up mayor stockman and they're headed to try to find the sheriff's missing deputies there's a beeping sound and the mayor asks what that sound is Robert says, put on your seatbelt. Come on, you're inside a police car. Dude, buckle it up or you'll die. (laughs) Yeah. While they talk about the consequences the deputies will face if the sheriff finds out they're joking around or they've abandoned their post, they come across a patrol car, police lights still flashing. The sheriff says he thinks it's Jimson's car, and we see Officer Jimson get out of the car, mumbling to himself with his gun drawn. He waves the sheriff and the mayor away, and Sheriff Roberts calls out to him from inside the car to try to get him to come talk. As Jimson moves closer to the car, the dash cam shows that he has lesions all over his face. Poor Jimson. I know. Jimson beats on the hood of the sheriff's car, telling him to again to go away. Sheriff Roberts tries to get him into the car so he can take Jimson to the hospital, but Jimson just continues to sadly mumble, we're all going to die. We're all going to die over and over. Despite protests from the mayor, Sheriff Roberts gets out of the car to try to help Jimson. Jimson says they're eating his flesh. They're eating everybody's flesh and he's going to die. The sheriff tells him he's not going to die. And as he slowly approaches, Jimson raises his gun towards the sheriff and fires. The sheriff is hit in the chest and falls out of sight of the dash cam. 
Officer Jimson, despondent and softly crying, lifts the gun to his temple and shoots. He falls against his patrol car and to the ground, dead. This... This, Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this is one of the most heartbreaking scenes to me. Oh my God, it breaks my heart too, because he goes... You you shouldn't have to die like this. You don't have to die like this, sir. Like he he is trying to he is now infected, so he knows how much pain he's in. Mm-hmm. He saw how much pain those other people that were, were mm-hmm. in that were begging, begging for him, death. Begging for death. And he goes, You shouldn't have to die like this. But he's like, We're all die I mean, we're all gonna die. So he shoots him. He does what he thinks is like the the. Um, He's saving him the pain. That, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough. It's tough. We see more shots of Main Street Claridge from Alex's point of view, with him focusing on all the corpses. Even seeing poor Miss Crustacean dead on the ground. She still got her little crown she and sash didn't make on. It. Inside the store, Stephanie calls for Alex to come in, saying she's gotten Skype to work. I don't know how they got Skype to work. Right. If there's no cell tower, I mean, I get, I don't know, whatever. She got Skype to work. It's a movie. Don't ask questions. <laughs> they talk to a man named Bill, I'm guessing who's like a friend or a family member, saying that they arrived in Claridge to find nobody around and nothing but bodies in the streets. Bill says, hey, that's a really good joke. But Stephanie insists they're not joking. Bill says, well, then why don't you call the police? And Stephanie says that she tried, but she wasn't able to get through to to them or to her parents and that all the cell phone lines are down. Bill asks what happened to Alex and Alex stresses he doesn't know what's going on. Bill says, no, man. I mean, what's on your neck? Alex turns his head and we see a huge lesion has formed under his jaw. That's what you get for getting bay water in your mouth when Ugh. you jump in the water. I don't I don't think he meant to. No, he I He tries know. to spit it out. He's no, like, I, I got water in my mouth. Yeah. In the hospital, midnight on what is now July 5th, red emergency lights flash inside, and the halls and beds are filled with the dead. Dr. Abrams makes a video journal saying that he's going to show the world what happened here. He says the CDC stopped taking his calls, and he even called FEMA for assistance. He was thinking initially that it was a virus making everyone sick, but no. He believes now that it's a parasitic isopod eating people from the inside. Intestines, livers, kidneys, all soft tissue. While he speaks, face after face of the dead is shown inside the hospital. We see Jennifer, cell phone right next to her, leaning against a wall with boils covering her body. She is gone. A quick glimpse of a dead woman floating in a pool floaty is shown, her face and her hip bloody and mangled. An isopod crawls out of her hip wound and down her leg. Yeah, <laughs> pretty gnarly. I, this, uh, I'm going to give you a parallel. I don't know if it's obscure. It doesn't feel obscure to us because we grew up seeing this miniseries. A, 19, a little 1994 miniseries called The Stand. Um, oh, good one! Come on, Gary Sinise and Molly Ringwald, and oh my God, just everybody, every ever everyone is in this. Rob Lowe, Shawnee um, Smith, who we know from Saw, like everybody's in it. Yeah. Um. So Moose from Coach. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, in the very beginning of this uh, movie, though, or the miniseries, it opens up with Blue Easter Cult, mm-hmm. Fear the Reaper or the reaper and it is a scene of like all of these people who are dead 
from a virus that mm-hmm. has broken out and like there's like a dude dead on a fr- dead on a fryer and like but people have like these weird sores and they're it's not so again it's another one of those pestilence movies that scares the shit out of me yeah maybe that's just my like genre of scariest movies is like pestilence eco horror oh yeah. yeah but there's a there's a very like i feel that like eerie here. parallel yeah. yeah oh you're not wrong dr abrams lifts his shirt and says that he noticed a rash on his upper torso about 45 minutes earlier and says that if someone finds this tape to please please get it out to the public poor baby's doing his do his doing his duty he died doing his duty yeah Dashcam footage shows the police car, lights and sirens blaring, speeding down the residential streets of Claridge with Mayor Stockman behind the wheel. Body after body is in his path in the street. A man appears in the middle of the road, bloodied and trying to wave the car down, but Stockman just speeds past him. As he drives through a four-way intersection, blowing the stop sign, a car T-bones the driver's side door, and we see the police car sputter to a stop. Yeah, he's going like 90 in a residential. This dude's... (laughs) Text on screen says, Mayor John Stockman died from injuries suffered in the accident. His death may have been preventable, but there were no emergency services available. Buckle it up or you'll die. I guarantee you he was not buckled in. I mean, I feel like that's just like a little tiny Easter eggy thing they put like to hint. Is it bad to say fucking good? Like, I I also hope he pooped himself when he died. Like, (laughs) fuck this guy. This dude sucks. This dude sucks. Back in the store, Alex chokes and vomits as Bill from the Skype call asks what's wrong and what's going on. Stephanie hears a helicopter from outside and tries to reassure Alex that help is almost there. He grabs his stomach in excruciating pain, and all he can say is how much it hurts. Stephanie is desperate to comfort him, but Alex grabs an iron fire poker and begs Stephanie to stop the pain. He continues to vomit blood as Stephanie takes the poker, lining it up against his stomach. Alex's neck begins to pulse and a huge isopod bursts through his jugular and we see a shot of Bill's horrified face on the computer as we hear squelching and stabbing with Stephanie screaming over and over. It is a lot, but watching that fucking thing come out from under his neck skin, I'm like, "Mm -mm, that is not okay. It is not okay. In voiceover, Donna says that Alex died at 1.36 a.m. and that the larva he must have swallowed in the bay had turned into a full-grown specimen in eight hours. And again, he's in excruciating pain and he's screaming at her to finish him. She's holding a poker and he's like, why every time I speak? Go, go, go lay down. You know what? I'm going to leave the collar jingle in and people can just know that I have a dog. Mm Mm-hmm. That's Gobo. Anyway, he begs her to, like, he's begging her to finish it. He's holding the poker, too. It's like, I wouldn't probably be as affected if they didn't sell the pain so much. But they really sell how much it hurts in every single scene. Yeah, and nobody that they cast in this movie is anybody, you know, at the time. We know that, you know, um, the girl who plays Stephanie went on to play, like, Dana and Cabin in the Woods. Like, some of these people went on to you know have bigger roles or whatever but at this point nobody is anybody so they got they they did some good casting here mm-hmm. 
A video call is placed from U.S. Homeland Security to the CDC, and Homeland Security Officer Slattery, played by Anthony Reynolds, says he's returning a call about the Chesapeake Bay area. He continues that they were informed of the two divers being found a few weeks prior, and that although Natural Resources Police thought the divers had died of bull shark bites, a medical examiner determined that the bites were not shark bites. The case was then referred to Homeland Security, then to the Coast Guard, then to FEMA where nobody responded. And so now Homeland Security is referring the case back to the CDC. Completely annoyed, Williams asks what the report says. And Slattery says the report says the cause of death was listed as undetermined due to multiplicity of parasites and variety of infections. Slattery asks if Williams wants a copy of the report and dripping with sarcasm, Williams says he'd love to get a copy of that report. While this conversation's taking place, we get surveillance camera footage of Stephanie and her baby making their way to an abandoned police vehicle in the empty streets of Claridge. The baby begins to cry as Stephanie buckles him into the front seat. She goes to start the car and an infected woman pops up from the back seat, screaming and bleeding from her mouth. Her tongue is most likely gone as all we can hear is the woman attempting to beg for help while she reaches out for Stephanie. Stephanie screams and tries to fight the woman off, smashing her head against the dashboard and seemingly breaking her neck. As Stephanie jumps out of the car to retrieve the baby, an isopod crawls out of the dead woman's mouth and over towards the baby. More conversation between Homeland Security and the CDC plays. Williams asks why in the world it took 16 days for this report to make its way to the CDC. And Slattery says that if they had set up an incident response without cause, they'll all be in deep crap. Williams, frustrated, says, well, we have a town full of dead bodies here. And Slattery stresses that um, it's a small town. It's important that we have perspective here. Oh, my God. This is so chilling. It's like, well, it's not New York or Chicago. So, like, you guys can just whatever. And it feels like, I mean, I (laughs) believe... (laughs) sell me is such a cynic i want to be such a cynic on this episode but like you i believe it (laughs) i know (laughs) slattery continues that if they blow up a non-issue and shut down the entire chesapeake bay there will be a public panic and they just can't shut down the entire eastern seaboard without the approval of higher-ups williams has had enough of this shit says thanks and hangs up on slattery Surveillance cam footage shows Stephanie walking down the street alone with a baby in a car seat, and Donna's voice comes in to say that about 5.30 a.m., people in hazmat suits did finally show up with the National Guard, and the town was quarantined for three days while they confiscated all the footage and cameras they could find. On-screen text says that the isopods were killed off by dumping massive amounts of chlorine into the Claridge Channel. Donna continues and says that there were those who survived and never became sick. She says a financial settlement was reached between the government and the town. And while the details of the actual dollar figure aren't known, she does know that part of the agreement was that everyone in Claridge was to remain silent on the incident. Donna tried to reach out to some people like Stephanie to give their sides of the story, but she says that nobody agreed to participate in the film. On-screen text says that the Chesapeake Bay remains 40% lifeless. Donna says that the official line from the government was that the outbreak was caused by unseasonably high water temperatures. She says, this is Donna Thompson signing off. The screen goes black and the credits roll. 
the end. And I am feeling left like hopeless and grossed out. How about and kind you? of kind of mad? Oh pretty, God, pretty mad. Yeah. So Amy, I need to know what you thought of this movie, The Bay. I, you know, I will tell you what I thought, but I first would like to just go into because the reviews were all over the place. This they really were. This. This movie did not do as well as you would think for a horror. Like Mm-mm. you said, a lot of people are, maybe people are sleeping on the bay or maybe they saw it and they're like, another found footage film. This was during a time that the market was very saturated oh, with yeah. found footage films. Yeah. So I think people might have just backburnered it based on that alone. And there's there's no hope in this movie gives you no hope no there's no happy ending there's no right off into the sunset there's no there's really no there's a final girl but is there well it is just it's not a date night movie that's no for sure. and like you mentioned you know there is no happy ending and you don't even get the happy ending of like once the movie's over you're like well thank god that's all fake no dude they said 80% of the science in this movie is like real and happening. So like you don't even get a break being like, Haha, that could never happen because it's fucking happening. Right. So a couple of things, a couple of reviews here um, from the AV Club and in, uh, in a review in 2016 or 2016, they said the Bay isn't viscerally terrifying that often, aside from occasional jump scares or gross out, but it exhibits a fullness that's rare for the subgenre. As Levinson and his editors weave hundreds of uh inexpensively staged shot snippets into something that feels more like an epic scale disaster picture. So I, I take issue with, and I said this earlier, you did say we would get into it. I take issue with this just being a found footage film. Yeah. To me, it reads more like a mockumentary. Yeah. Um, in the Baltimore Sun article, a, uh, veteran, a veteran watershed scientist and director of the uh, a University of Maryland supported research center says I would have put more science into it um, and she says in a subtle way I would have done more so she explained like there was another uh, review in that same article from Elizabeth Buckman who is the vice president of communications for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and Annapolis based advocacy group and she says i'm not sure about this she said she was hoping we would see a film we could we could use to jumpstart a conversation about the bay and what we can do and so i think that scientists and people who advocate for stuff that happened at the bay saw this movie and kind of thought of it as a joke or that people wouldn't take it seriously enough to want to find out what was going on i can i disagree with that too though because i wouldn't have even cared had right. I not right. seen we don't the bay. live in the area. Like, I wouldn't we're just have like, hit, whatever. It wouldn't have come across my radar. But because I saw the bay, I was like, holy shit, some of this is real. Holy shit, a lot of this is real. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of dove in and then I got depressed and mad. <laughs> but like I think it's important for movies like this to exist because it does kind of for, it does hold up a mirror. Mm-hmm. And what is what is the absolute best form of speaking truth to power art man artists use art to speak truth to power Mm -hmm. where reporters maybe can't because they're censored um so i absolutely love this as a piece of art because i'm like yeah dude yeah dude i know you made wag the dog and all that but like Mm -hmm. here here you took uh you took 
something, a message that you were passionate about coming from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. You took a, pe- a, a a subject that like you really wanted to get across and you knew that nobody would pay attention to a documentary. So you're like, fuck it. Let's fuck it up. Let's make it gross. Let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's make it scary. Let's scare people. Let's with scare it. people with it and see if it is something that they'll go check out. I, as a, as a, as a person love as a person, as an artist, love that. Mm-hmm. And celebrate it yeah and absolutely think that everybody should see this movie i think it's important yeah important movie to watch i completely love this movie um like i said it i'm i'm kind of numb to a lot of horror um you know but this one stuck with me stuck with me to the point where i was like you know i know it's not the most popular film that everybody knows about but i really want to cover it because i just it it it, I reacted to it, it you know um, the fact that there is science involved that is you know largely true yeah. the fact that Barry Levinson said I could do a documentary but somebody already did one and nobody seemed to care so let me see if I can make something people will care about even if it is fictitious yeah. it's based in truth um, you know I, I I love what he did with it you know I and do hate that people probably looked at it and said, "What? It's found footage. Never mind. I don't even want to check it out." Yeah, and I, I honestly think maybe what was the disservice to this film is maybe it lived a little bit too much in the middle because maybe it wasn't based in enough fact for people who were scientists and who right. you know supported the foundation and like maybe that was just like oh, it's not going to do it's not going to do well, I can see why scientists wouldn't from, be and then from the horror genre from the horror lovers people are like what the fuck is this shit man this bums me out you know yeah you're like yeah it bums me out but to me maybe this is just me and boy we could go into a discussion of what is horror and what's it supposed to make you feel but part of horror to me is dread yes and this makes me feel dread about the world we live in about the environment about what's happening about climate change whatever and so yes there's the spookies and the ghosties and the goblins and the whatever and right paranormal stuff that stuff gets me that's more entertaining but this one to me was even more horrific because it's based in truth and so based in truth and it could i mean something along these lines could happen but yet there's enough ridiculousness there's a there's right. enough like oh my oh my god okay that's a that's a bit much where you can at the end of the day like take your stress goggles off and go okay it's just a movie mm-hmm. this didn't actually happen it's just a movie right and so i do love that about horror and you're right mm-hmm. like it has got to make you feel something this definitely made me feel some kind of way yeah and uh michael wallach who wrote the screenplay for this said you know like a ton of the science is real he said you're gonna know the part that like we threw in that's kind of the ridiculous part which is the the radiation leak that like nobody was aware of and blah 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 so like they kind of had that where they're like well yeah obviously that's not true but so much of it but besides that felt real it felt like we're living in a world where this stuff could potentially happen and yeah. that's what makes it so terrifying so and i think the mismatch and and it, it is a mismatch if i'm going to be honest because the mismatch of visual effects is is clockable 
Like there are the where there are amazing makeup scenes. There are also makeup scenes where like you can see some edges and like stuff's not blended out that great. While the CG looks awesome in places and is enhanced in other places, it's very like obviously mm-hmm. too well rendered in a not very high resolution camera right. shot. So you're right. like, okay, and then there's the C- CGI isopod, which right. is obviously CGI. So like, while there are moments of like that where it kind of takes you back out of it a little bit, mm-hmm. I I think that that. I take that a little bit as kind of a breath of fresh air to just be like, it's just a movie. Right, because you can see the seams and the cracks a little bit. So you're like, oh God, okay, if it was too perfect, it would seem yeah. too real and yeah. I'd have to go crawl under my covers and suck I my thumb. I kind of need those little breaks of like, okay, it's not perfect because if it right. was too convincing, man, I think it's like... Well, kind of like the scene where you said, you know, the audio of the cops in the house. You're like, it's goofy. You need that little right. bit of like, well, this is obviously not anything that could happen right to kind of you're not wrong it, yeah. it gives your brain a break from the dread yeah so uh how many days are you renting this for i'm gonna say seven really i i know i feel like you like i feel i feel like there were just a few things to me that could have been maybe more subtle mm-hmm. and did take me out i think i feel like in too much of a way i also feel like there were moments where it felt like Levinson was telling his audience that he thought they were a bit stupid. Not, not, <laughs> not because I felt like he was, not because I feel like the tone of the movie is condescending. I don't mm-hmm. feel that way, but I do feel like there's moments where like things were very clearly spelled out where I'm like, well, you could have probably left out that spelling, that exposition. Yeah. I don't think you needed to, to shove that in our faces for us to get from point A to point B. You probably could have left a little of it hidden because at the end of the day, this is a mockumentary, but it's also part found footage film. Right. So like not all of the pieces are there. It's okay if not all of the pieces are there. And right. so I th- there were moments where I was like, okay, dude, just hit me over the head with it. Yeah, I get it. You know, so... I personally seven is solid. No, it's a solid movie. Um, I'll watch it again. Obviously, we own it. I'll watch yeah. it again. It's gonna be a long time before I can. Yeah, though. because I'm gonna want to eat, you know, Red Lobster or whatever sushi sooner. Yeah, sooner rather than later. Um, for me, I was torn between two numbers. I think for me, I'm gonna go ahead and rent this one for eight days. Um, oh. I love this movie it's an up there it's an up there it's not like you said it's not one that i'm like oh man i could watch this any day i haven't memorized you know like some other movies i'm like anytime it's on tv i'll turn it on it's not that that gives me that causes me to give this the rating that i did it's the fact that it stuck with me after my first watch the fact that still we've rewatched it you know a couple times over the last weeks to prepare to prepare for the podcast it still squicks me out. It still makes me feel something. And not every horror movie, even ones that I adore, can make me feel something. And this movie made me feel something. Yeah. Like you said, the CGI, eh. The makeup, for the most part, is great, but sometimes, eh. Um, the main character, Donna, 
I'm kind of annoyed by her. Yeah. So there's there's plenty of stuff in this film I could pick apart. But if a piece of art makes you feel something. Yeah. Then to me, it is valuable. And so because of that, I am giving this movie an eight. Yeah. It's it's definitely, like you said, I I do own this movie. Yeah. Because of that reason. Yeah. And so um, I said in the beginning, there's so much more that was on screen that I didn't cover just because of how quick and loaded all the shots were. So I do highly recommend that people go watch it. But Well, and I think, too, like, because I am a big fan of analog horror, and I think that um, I just wanted to do a little bit more of the work myself. And you know maybe what? that's that, why I feel like it was just like makes too laid out for me. And I'm like, I want to do something. I want to find out why. Some people you know, don't want like that, though. Less and less... For sure. For sure. And he is like, he is a major movie director. So I know that that's, we're talking about Hollywood, major Hollywood films like Rain Man. We know that like, you got to spell it out. It's, it was such a different, it was such a departure for him that. Oh yeah. And honestly, for this being his only horror movie, because he has not done any since, I think it was a really excellent job. And hey, one more thing, props to the makeup department, because there are so many Extras. Oh, I was thinking that. Any screen time when you're looking at the footage of that waiting room, and you're just like everybody I'm laying eyes on has rash and lesions and blisters and pustules and grossness. So they they the little hard work and makeup staff. High um, fives, high fives all around. High fives all around, man. They really busted their butts to get it gross, and it was gross. Yep. That wraps it up for this episode, listeners and lurkers. Thanks for joining us here on the Last Aisle. What did you think of this week's episode? Let us know on our social media channels, at Last Style on Facebook and Twitter, and at Last Style Pod on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, sit back, cuddle up in the Atlantic Hospital waiting room, and grab a plate full of crab legs, and come peruse the selection of movies in the last aisle. See you soon.